I, I, when somebody says, how does it work? I say, do you want a traditional Chinese explanation? Do you want a Western explanation? Do you want a mythic explanation? Do you want a rational explanation? Do you want a magical explanation? I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I went to the post office the other day to buy some stamps. I like cool stamps, and sometimes the post office is serving up something that's interesting or commemorative. I really am a sucker for a nice stamp. Unfortunately, on this day, the offerings, they weren't that great. There were some frogs that looked okay. I just finished up a sheet of John Lennon stamps. Those were cool. I never buy the flags. That's boring. And there were some commemoratives of other singers, but nothing really called me. And then there was this odd but okay flower. All right, fine. Frogs and flowers, please. The guy gives me the stamps as I swipe my card. And after signing, I notice that what I thought were flowers were cactuses. Yeah, there were some flowers on them, but basically cactuses. Now, this is a problem for me. And it's a problem because I monthly send a check to someone and I happen to know they hate cactuses. They had some bad run-ins with the spiky critters. So I can't use the cactus stamps. And so I tell the postal worker I need to exchange these cactus stamps for, I don't know, something with dead poets or something like that on it. And he says, no refunds, no exchanges. And I think it's funny. I mean, all I've done is pick up these stamps and realize I have cactuses and not flowers. But when he reaches over and points at the receipt right there in black and white where it says, no refunds, no exchanges, that's when I realize he's not joking. In fact... You couldn't be more serious. Now, you might think, as I did, that this guy's a jerk. And, and I sure did think so at the time. And then I went through the self-congratulatory story in my head about he's a postal drone with a J-O-B. And I'm a businessman with inside attentiveness and a caring heart. And, but you know what? I can be just as rigid, unseeing, and uncaring. How do I know that? Because I was able to see it in him. It's easy to see the things we dislike or are blind to in ourselves and others. I get fussy patients that don't follow the rules in my clinic. I can be just as rigid with my family members when we're having some kind of a feud. I've got my own blind spots where I don't see what someone else sees because I'm sticking to my principles. And so I miss the opportunity to understand them. And I miss the opportunity to soften a stance that's usually based on either fear habit laziness or just to feel a delicious moment like I'm in control and can exercise power over someone else. It's hard to see things from someone else's perspective. But of course, our clinics give us this kind of rich opportunity to listen, not for confirmation of our biases, thoughts and beliefs, but rather to listen for how something makes our patients feel, how they have extracted a certain meaning from an event, encounter or diagnosis. And like the guy at the post office, there's a set of unquestionable rules that guide our interactions. We all have them. The rules and beliefs that guide our perception and interactions. And we're so sure that we're reasonable. And I know for myself, I like having the feeling of internal consistency. And the parts that I'm blind to, but show up in my feelings of frustration or confusion, the parts that don't quite fit the story of who I like to think I am or I want to be, those are a lesson to be considered, even if I don't like the teacher. It's hard to see what's in the blind spot. And while there might be flowers amidst the thorns, you got to watch out for those thorns. In just a moment, we'll be getting into a conversation with Lonnie Jarrett. 
Lonnie has some unique points of view. And if you're familiar with his name, it's probably because you either appreciate his work or you've got some disagreements about it. As with all these podcast conversations, I'm looking not so much to debate or argue points of view as I'm looking more to understand and share a practitioner's particular perspective. Of course, practitioners of Chinese medicine have been putting forth new ideas based on their understanding of the basic principles of medicine for centuries. And as ever, it's our clinical experience that sorts out what is or is not useful for us. And I hope that you'll find this conversation to be helpful regardless of the opinion that you might already have. All right, let's get into today's conversation with the acupuncturist above Alice's Restaurant. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine And the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lyle, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and 
manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Bonnie Jarrett, welcome to Geological. Hey, good morning, Michael. So I pretty much start all these shows. I'm always curious to know how people got into Chinese medicine, especially people like you. You've been at this for a long time. You know, it's not the kind of thing that a high school counselor probably told you about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I I think I got into it really because, you know, I mean, ultimately, we never know. There's some... Uh, karma or some destiny involved with it. I can tell you that I grew up, I was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s and early 70s. And mm, that sounds like like a rock and roll song. (laughs) Yeah. By, 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 I'd say 1972, you know, my mother had a huge library in the house. And um, she had all of James Legg's and Burden Watson's translations of the Chinese classics, including Wilhelm's I Jing. And I just found them and started reading them and became enthralled with them uh, around the age of uh, 14, I would say, and, and just read them and read them. And I'm sure didn't understand anything, but, the, but I, what I did understand is there was something very deep pulling me mm-hmm. toward them. How did your mom end up with books like that in in a library at home? She just had walls and walls and walls of every kind of books. And there was a shelf on philosophy and world religions with texts from every tradition. And I guess I was drawn toward the Asian texts because at the time um, I was growing up, there was a huge influx of the Eastern teachings into the West. You know, George Harrison played sitar on Within Without You. Right. And, and, uh, you know, relax and let your mind float downstream and all of that. And, and I knew a little bit about who Carl Jung was and Jung had written the introduction to the, uh, to Wilhelm's I Ching. And I just became absolutely fascinated and compelled to read and read and try to understand. I What I did know is that they were giving me a perspective and a point of view on existence that was completely different from um, the materialism that I was seeing in culture, mm-hmm. that I was being raised in in the West in the context of the Vietnam War still being on and, you know, looking for some other perspectives. Yeah. I remember reading that uh, Wilhelm E. Jing and completely not getting any of it. I would go to it again and again and again, and I was never able to get anything out of that one. Uh huh. It's I, still my favorite translation, probably just because I grew up with it. I mean, I've got 
25 translations of the I Ching on a shelf here. But if I if I use the I Ching, that's still the one I go to. Uh huh. Are there any others that you like to read besides that one? Any other go tos, or that that's still the main one? Well, the, well, the one by uh, Ritsema, R I T S E M A, is really scholarly and authoritative in the way that Unschuld's translations of the Chinese classics are, meaning there are commentaries and discussions of the Chinese characters and what they mean. I just don't find it as easy. So from a scholarly point of view, that's quite a profound text. Um, I don't find it as easy to work with. I love Louis, the, um, Thomas Cleary's translations of Louis Ming's Taoist and Buddhist teaching. Louis Ming was a Chinese physician who worked in the late 1700s to very early 1800s, maybe uh 1770 to 1810 or 20. And he really represents in a way the high point of the Taoist canon. He, he interpreted the um, complete reality school of Taoism and translated it in terms of what all the language meant, all the esoteric language, so it could be practically addressed. And um, in him, you, you start to see him beginning to brace, embrace ideas of evolution and spiritual evolution, really um, as a sort of predecessor to people like Aryabind, Sri Aurobindo and Teilhard de Chardin. And um, there is a woman named Susan Anthony out in Stowe, Massachusetts, who's been interpreting the I Ching and writing a whole collection of books on the I Ching for 30, 40 years now. And she finally did, rather than just a commentary on the I Ching, she translated the whole thing and more interpreted than translated it. And I'd consider her as sort of a postmodern I Ching, which is mm -hmm. interesting to read for that perspective. Okay. So we got, we got some recommendations there. Great. So you grew up with these books. This stuff was just around you. Mm -hmm. It was sort of in, in the, uh, in the water that you drank. So when did that turn into actually thinking, oh, acupuncture school or maybe a career here? Well, you know, I mean, so when I wrote my college entrance essay, I had just taken two years of course. I went to an alternative high school with no grades or tests mm -hmm. with courses like world comparative religious literature, philosophy, psychology, group psychology. I mean, it, it was quite a remarkable opportunity and experience. And I wrote my college entrance essay on the theoretical foundations and complementarity between the Eastern and Western point of view. And um, Chinese medicine acupuncture had just come into America the year or two before with Nixon's trip to China. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing in 74, 75, Nixon went to China in 72, right? So just a few years before. So in that article, in, in that essay, I, I mentioned Chinese medicine and acupuncture as examples of a different cultural way of looking at things. But, you know, um, it wasn't really a profession in the country at that time. And no 17-year-old Jewish kid from Long Island was really going to practically think, I think what I want to be is an acupuncturist. Right. No, I mean, that would be completely, I mean, how could you? 
No, it wasn't. It, yeah. it didn't exist. So didn't exist. Uh, the only people practicing it really at that point were Chinese in Chinatown in New York. And in fact, my best friend, my closest friend through mm, fifth grade through about 10th grade was Chinese and his family were Chinese. And we went into Chinatown often together. And it was complete immersion in a very different culture. And I remember going into Chinese pharmacies and seeing these little cardboard boxes of cerebral brain tonic pills with a picture of a head and somebody's brain on it. Mm -hmm. And thinking to myself, these must be the most ignorant people in the world. <laughs> like I just, I had philosophical context, but I didn't really understand. And you know, you'd read the ingredients on bare gallbladder and this, that, and the other thing. And it just all seemed like voodoo to me. So I, I went to college and I went for psychology, shifted to neurobiology because I wanted something more real. Um, graduated from college in 1980 and immediately signed up for a 10-week course in Chinese medicine, um, being advertised by a local acupuncturist. And, you know, it just fate as fate had it, it was mm. a graduate of the Worsley School. It could have been a graduate of, it could, well, there weren't that many schools, but it could have been someone practicing TCM or Korean acupuncture or any other tradition. But it happened to be a five element practitioner. Mm -hmm. and, it ha and it happened to come across your path at the right moment. Yeah. So I signed up for this 10 week course. During the course, I fell in love with the medicine, but I also got a full scholarship into uh, graduate school at the University of Michigan. And I couldn't turn that down. So I went there and I proposed for my graduate thesis in front of the entire medical department and neuroscience department, a room filled with about 100 researchers, um, studying the innervation of the shoe points using the new brain scanning technology that it had been invented and radio immunoassays and studying endorphin and enkephalin pathways and trying to see to what degree were these organ relationships that the Chinese had posited for the shoe points, where were they mapped onto the brain and where were they mapped in the organs? and you know, I was taken into a room, told me my presentation didn't pass. And then a student came up to me afterwards and he said, this is off the record, but if you take your preliminary examinations, they're going to fail you no matter what you put down. They want, they're offering you a master's degree and want you to take it and walk away. And when I met with the professors, they said, no one's going to use a PhD from our neuroscience program to further the cause of Chinese medicine quackery. Now, the irony is the I forget the man's name, but the president of the Society for Acupuncture Research is now a professor of, and physician of anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. So things have come a long way in since 1980, I would say. Well, and things tend to turn into their opposites. Yeah. So anyway, I, I left, I took my master's degree, uh, Went back. Now, 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 this is really this is cool. Mm -hmm. You're in a graduate program, so you're you're still looking at this Chinese medicine stuff. I mean, it's still like running around in your brain as you're doing the neurobiology. How how did you come up with this idea to use the shoe points 
and then use this new technology of brain mapping to see what's what. It seems obvious. <laughs> you know, I was very, I had worked at Albert Einstein Medical School and then at the University of Michigan. Um, my, my research in neuroscience is published in the Journal of Experimental Morphology. DNA research is published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I was very, very serious about it. And at the same time I was studying all of that, Monfred Porkert's first books came out, um, The Theoretical Foundations of Chinese Medicine. And uh, Ted Kapchuk's uh, first book came out, The Web That Has No Weaver. So I was mm, in classic. school. I was in grad school and right from 81 to 83. And those books started coming out, which were pointing the way to Chinese medicine as a serious science that could be investigated with deep and profound scholarship. So I have those books on one side of my desk, as well as literally uh, the journal back then was the American Journal of Acupuncture. Mm. And it's a fabulous, it doesn't exist anymore, but the archives are fabulous. There were so many excellent articles in it. And I literally had everyone that had been published on one bookshelf in my room. And I'm reading them frenetically while I'm reading all this molecular biology and neuroscience. And I felt like my brain was splitting apart and I had to make a choice. And what I decided was, well, before I give up neuroscience, I'm going to go make my pitch and give it everything to see mm -hmm. if I can pursue both. And the answer that came down in black and white was no. And I left and you know, worked another year at Albert Einstein Medical School to earn the money. You, you could earn enough money to go to acupuncture school in one year back then. Yeah. Well, how long <laughs> was acupuncture school back then? Two years. It was two years back then. It was, it was three or three and a half years compressed into two. It, we were going to school 28 out of 30 days straight, literally sometimes 28 or 30 days in a row without a day off. And then you'd get two weeks or three weeks. You'd study, learn the stuff, meet with your classmates, come back, take a test, and do the next module. Mm -hmm. So, so it was like a three-year program, maybe con condensed into two. Yeah, squish it down. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's fascinating that these days there is so much going on with research and mm -hmm. acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And have you ever thought about going back and, and doing some of that? No, in fact, <laughs> when I first moved back to Massachusetts to set up my practice in Stockbridge. Like literally, like maybe the first three or five days I lived here, I had this dream that I went back to the molecular biology lab where I was doing DNA research at the University of Massachusetts to work. And I literally got in my car, drove back to the lab to have lunch with the people because we were all still friends. And I looked at the man who ran the lab at the time and said, if I ever come back and ask you for a job, send me away and don't hire me. <laughs> and it, it took it took years to um, it took me so no you know people knew about so it was an interesting thing starting back then. So I started my practice in 1986 here, and on the one hand I had no competition. 
On the other hand, Chinese medicine wasn't that much in the popular awareness. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Right. So we actually had plenty of competition. It was all the other medicine. When I first, not, well, not, not, not to mention cultural differences. And well, what got and, my practice going was the week I announced, the week that... Uh, I, I rented my place. I, I had to go to the town hall to a meeting to get a sign permit for my office. Mm -hmm. And this got back to a physician who was a famous physician and famous Arctic explorer who wrote then a letter to the editor declaring that Chinese medicine and acupuncture were complete and utter fraud. And charlatan and not even the placebo, they were just witchery. And they gave me time to respond. And I, I wrote a very dignified, very measured response, which then announced to everyone in the entire county that, and my phone started ringing off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been there, I've been in the same office now uh, since 1986. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, that old saying in marketing, there is no such thing as bad press. That's right. You have to respond to every opportunity in a way that makes it, makes things better. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your practice look like these days? Okay. Well, I spend my time, uh, I have two and a half days a week. I have three treatment rooms. My office is in the old Masonic Hall on the third floor upstairs over Alice's Restaurant from the Arlo Guthrie. Seriously? Movie. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, Seriously. across the street, across the alley from uh, Norman Rockwell studio where he did his painting and across the street from where uh, James Taylor wrote his first album. If you remember the lyric, the road was all cloudy from Stockbridge to Boston. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a historic place. It's a quiet, beautiful town. I, It's a big place. So I have four treatment rooms, a reception area, a waiting room. And then the part of it that's the old Masonic Hall is where I teach my classes. Uh -huh. So that's got a vaulted ceiling and, and windows on three sides. It's very quiet and beautiful. I work there uh, two and a half, sometimes three, but usually just two and a half days a week. And I see hmm, 40 to 40 people a week in an average week. Yeah. So you're busy with all this. That's great. Uh -huh. You know, in Chinese medicine school, we learn about the 
I'm using air quotes here, the 10 questions, right? There's these famous 10 questions you're supposed to ask. Uh-huh. I've certainly found over the years that the way that I talk to people and the, and the things that are interesting, the things I want to know about my patients have changed over the years. Uh-huh. What are the kinds of questions you tend to ask your patients? Well, you know, I've outlined that whole thing in Nourishing Destiny. I think I go through the entire intake. The intake I do is not significantly different from what I learned from uh, J.R. Worsley and the Worsley School back in the day. It's more than 10 questions. It's probably about 30. Mm. I outline them all, and I teach them in my courses um, in, in a specific order. But, you know, when I got out, when I was in school, I met Leon Hammer, who was coming down to the what was the traditional acupuncture institute at the time, because Leon is just an open-minded person who, who would learn from anyone. And he was going down there and seeing patients with Bob Duggan and maybe Diane Conley, who were running the school at the time. And he came into one of my classes and sat with us, and we all had a talk. I got to meet many. The school was amazing then. We had Mark Seem, Kiku Matsumoto, J.R. Worsley, Monford Porkert, uh, Elizabeth Rochat. These were the people who came in and taught us at the time. And, and Leon came in. And um, I met him there. And when I graduated, I remembered there was this cool doctor who was practicing acupuncture who lives somewhere up here. And I called uh, Bob Duggan and got his name and number. And it turned out Leon was just uh, an hour and 15 minutes away in Saratoga. Mm -hmm. So I started going to see patients with him in his practice and suggested to him I would be happy to run courses for him out of my office. So I ran all his courses from 86 through 95. Most, almost all the courses he taught on the East Coast were out of my office. And I saw, went, you know, uh, different times to see patients with him. And we consulted on the phone a lot. So I learned his uh, pulse diagnosis, which I do on every patient. So that takes, mm, on average, 20 minutes per person, sometimes as long as 40. Mm -hmm. So you spend a fair amount of time with your patients. Uh, and a first session is two hours, which will include a treatment. So generally, I'm asking doing the questioning part for 30 to 45 minutes, pulses for 20 to 40 minutes. Then I give the person an explanation of what I see, what a reasonable expectation is in relationship to treatment. I talk to them a little about Chinese medicine, which is probably the only time in my entire relationship with them I'll ever mention Chinese medicine to them. I, I don't think I've used the term qi more than four or five times in my entire clinical career. How do you manage to avoid using that? I, I think that's brilliant to not use the, the term qi. How do you manage to talk about it but not talk about it? Well, you know, if I'm having a person install a dishwasher or a refrigerator in my house, I don't need them to explain electricity to me. But don't you have patients that come in and they're like, because they're not familiar with it. Uh-huh. At least I find this in my practice. People, yeah. people think they understand conventional medicine, so they don't question it. They don't ask about it. They just trust that it does. Mm -hmm. But because they don't understand what we're doing. 
and there's some, you know, some anxiety or just, you know, it's, it's outside of their scope. They want to feel more comfortable. And so they will often ask the question about how does this work? Well, I, I, when somebody says, how does it work? I said, do you want a traditional Chinese explanation? Do you want a Western explanation? Do you want a mythic explanation? Do you want a rational explanation? Do you want a magical explanation? You know, I, I talk to my patients practically in using metaphors that they understand in language that's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And I focus on what they need to start doing or stop doing in order to be healthy. And I help them, I help them discern the connection between their symptoms as expressions of their behaviors and their beliefs. So they can understand their symptoms as an expression of what they attend to, how they act, what they believe, and how they behave, and focus on different ways they can understand more, more healthy, and more objective, and more creative ways to frame the experience they've had in their life that'll lead to more wholesome outcomes rather than the inherently limited context most people relate to their experiences through, which is generally, you know, to sum up, that most people experience themselves as the present effect of some past cause, which mm. means they hold a victimized relationship to the experience of their lives. I am who I am because this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. And I'm significantly focusing on helping the person become self-authoring, which means helping them at least arrive at a stage of healthy and balanced ego where who they are is more a product of their higher striving toward their higher values and who they want to be. So in that way, they turn their attention from the past to the future. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a, a clinical example of someone that you've worked with in the past where you've done this? How would that treatment look? Oh, well, I mean, here's an example that I talk about in my new book. This, this, you know, this doesn't take communicating like this doesn't take time. People sometimes criticize and read my books as psychotherapy. And really, I mean, I just allot at most 15 minutes per session for talking. We're not in there gabbing away. I mean, if someone's hysterical about something because I have four treatment rooms, I can give them more time and go out and treat a patient and come back. But really these messages can be delivered succinctly. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. Students brought me a patient who was having panic attacks and anxiety. Um, in my two year clinical integration course, the whole second year is clinical and the students provide all the patients and I do a full intake in front of the room, a full diagnosis. The patient leaves and I spend two hours presenting everything that happened from the moment they walked in to the moment they left. Woman, woman was depressed, having constant anxiety attacks and insomnia because she had reported at work behavior that was unethical. Whistleblower. Unethical behavior. She had been a whistleblower at work. She had, uh, had witnessed dishonesty. She let higher-ups know about it and then was persecuted at work. 
And she was telling me her story and she was upset, visibly nervous and even teary and quite agitated. And I just calmly looked at her and said, is what you reported, was it honest? Was it true? And she said, yes. I said, if it happened again, would you report it again? And she said, absolutely. I said, okay, then you have to drop all the anxiety. If you know that you're in the right and you're completely behind what you did, then you can't be a victim of having done the right thing. And what you're doing to yourself with all these reactions is actually worse than anything anybody at work had done to you. And she sat up and she immediately, the whole class could see her transform in the chair. And what I, what I did was I was working without needles with her zenchi. She sat up straight. I was sitting up straight. I looked at her in the eyes. I said, if you do this again, then you have to drop it. And she did. And her practitioner reported back to me a week later and then several months later that she was just thriving. And from that interaction on, her insomnia disappeared, her anxiety disappeared, and her panic attack stopped. What happened with her work situation? She just held herself with dignity. Let damn the straight ahead, damn the torpedoes. That's the attitude of the life force. And this was many years ago. And after the last report from her practitioner, which was eight or 10 weeks after the encounter, I never heard about it again. But the practitioner had written me to say that the transformation in her was just stunning. And because it's not my patient, I don't know all the details. Mm -hmm. I can give you another example. They, so one of the things I do in, in the two-year course is I, I do what I just did, which is this the whole intake with the person. But on one day, we I, patients bring, the students bring me three people. And I go into a room, I take their pulse for 30 minutes, and I'm allowed to ask five questions. And they're only allowed to answer yes, no, or sometimes. The patient. The patient. Okay. So I get five questions. They can say yes, no, or sometimes. The students, I fill out a pulse sheet. The students off go take the pulse, looking at the sheet. The patient leaves, and then I present the three patients. So one patient, I went in the room said hello, we sat down. I cupped both her hands in my hands and looked in the eyes and said, I'm gonna take your pulse now. And I turned her wrists over and I saw a scar across lung eight on her left hand. And it was kind of jagged and I was just curious. I there's a voice inside that sort of tells me what to say. And I usually, I've learned to act on it. Mm. And I said, tell me about that scar. It was interesting because she was metal constitution, had a Betty Page haircut, you know, black bangs, Betty Page haircut, and um, very white skin, all silver jewelry, classic metal. And there she has the scar across long eight, the metal point on, on the, the metal, metal meridian. Mm -hmm. So I thought, tell me about that scar. And she said, do I have a scar? And I pointed to the one I meant on her hand, on her wrist, and she looked at it and she said, I'll never forgive my father. And father is connected to metal, right? Earth is mother, umbilical cord, but father is metal. And I looked at her and just spontaneously said, you don't have to forgive your father to be free. And she said, what? I said, the idea that you need to forgive to be redeemed is a Christian concept. It's just a thought. 
it isn't necessarily true. You can be free right now. And it just hit her like a lightning bolt. And I took her pulses. The students took her pulses. She left. And that was on a Sunday. And I did, now, did she get any acupuncture treatment? No, no. No acupuncture treatment? No. So she came in. I came in on Tuesday to get my messages at work. And there was a message from her. And she said, in the 30 years I've been doing psychotherapy in every form of healing, the 30-second interaction we had at the beginning of the pulse diagnosis was the most profound healing that I ever had, and it's completely changed my life. Well, why would it do that? Because she was stuck in a perspective. Her consciousness was entrained and habituated to a thought. The thought is, I can't heal and I can't be whole till I've forgiven my father. And she can't forgive her father. And the reason she can't forgive is because she's still angry and still in pain over what happened in that relationship. And the mind uses the anger and pain as proof that she hasn't yet forgiven. And I just looked at her and said, no, that's not proof that you haven't yet forgiven. What happened between you and your father? And I didn't even know what it was. I said, whatever happened between the two of you, anger and pain is probably, most likely, a totally human and reasonable response. But the presence of anger and pain doesn't mean you haven't healed. And not only does it, mean, does it not mean that you aren't whole, it doesn't mean that you have ever not been whole. Mm -hmm. So this simple kind of reframing can just change everything. Chinese medicine, as far as I'm concerned, in its subtle transpersonal dimension, is, is working with consciousness. It's working with consciousness. I understand Chinese medicine first and foremost as an integral medicine that leaves no part of the self behind. So it includes energy and matter, the body, the mind, the ego, the soul, the spirit. And in its inner dimensions, what I called in my first book, the inner tradition of Chinese medicine, in its depth dimensions, in the sense of, for instance, Jungian depth psychology, we're really dealing with consciousness. And uh, there are many sources of input to illness, genetic, environmental. Many of these sources we have no control over, at least as acupuncturists. I can't improve the quality significantly, you know, of a patient's water or, mm -hmm. or of their air. Or their or, social standing or social relationships. Well, we can improve those things. We can. We can. Yeah, of course we can improve those things. I just wrote a whole series of articles, a series of three articles in uh, the journal. It, it was called uh, Meridians, and they just changed their name. I can't remember what it is now. It's put out by the Organization of American States, the, the new national organization. Beautiful acupuncture journal. I, I wrote a series of three articles on integral medicine. Well, we can change people's social standing by changing their relationship to their social standing. From a victimized relationship to one of becoming self-authoring and a, adopting sort of a damn the torpedo straight ahead kind of attitude, which of course is more or less practical for people at different levels of socioeconomic. 
Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, as you say, damn the torpedoes attitude. It it actually makes me come back to thinking about us acupuncturists in a way, right? Because, you know, we're out here, especially new practitioners, right? You come out, you've got some skills, you got some desire to help people. You're not sure what you're doing. And, you know, we so often hear in in school and, and from teachers that we respect that a part of learning to be a practitioner is learning from your clinical mistakes. And mm-hmm. yet it seems like our clinical mistakes are often the hardest thing to learn from. Have you got any thoughts about what especially new practitioners can do to kind of stay together with themselves as they're confronted with new information that kind of breaks the mental models that they've got? Or, well, well, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there are a few things to say about that. I'd suggest whatever you school, whatever acupuncture school you're going to, whatever tradition it is, do everything you can to learn everything your teachers are teaching you. Mm. Every school has, and every system has its strengths and deficiencies. I would say that what's lacking for most people is philosophical context. So it really helps to have to read the world's philosophical literature to be able to embrace different points of view. Chinese medicine, as formulated by the communist state, is a true but very, very partial and materialistic thermodynamic perspective on illness. The classics are beautiful and very important, and they give a Confucian Han dynasty perspective on medicine, but we want philosophical context commensurate with the time and place we live in. And I would suggest also, so so that means reading, that means reading. I'm sitting here talking to you in a library with a thousand books in it, and I'm still ordering about one or, you know, one or two a week with 40 on my, literally 40 books on my desk on my to read list here. So we need to expand ourselves as human beings. We need intellectually and we, the, philosophically, we need to grow to hold a deep and 
wide and ever-expanding philosophical context on what we're doing, commensurate with the time and place in which we live. We need to cultivate and have a cultivational practice. I did Taekwondo six, you know, and Hapkido uh, six days a week for 27 years, ran a school for 17 years. And since that closed, I've, I've been doing meditation and Qigong continually of very deep practices of both. So we need to have an embodied practice. And I'd also suggest two things for people getting out of schools. Mm -hmm. One, do what I did, get a mentor. Find a practitioner. I, I had two mentors, one in the five element tradition who at that time, who had been practicing since about 1974. I graduated in 86, so he had been practicing, uh, you know, uh, 12 years by that point. And let me say, at that point, 12 years made him a senior practitioner. All right, back in those days, it would. <laughs> back, yeah. back, back in those days. Yeah. And so get someone in your tradition. And also, you know, we've got access now over the internet to the whole world. So find a practitioner who motivates you, read books, attend lectures, go to conferences where you can sit in with and hear 10 or 15 people speak, find someone and wherever they are in the world, go and study with them. I mean, how would you approach suggest uh, uh, not suggest? How would you approach a mentor with the intention of, of building that kind of a relationship? Well, these days it's not hard. You can say start these days. You don't even have to travel. You can, you can just, take do things over the internet right people are offering courses over the internet go go on the internet and listen to podcasts just like this and and you know watch youtube videos of people and when someone if someone really speaks to you and you think to yourself wow you know i want to be a practitioner like this find out where the person's teaching and go and i'd also suggest the other thing for new students to do is it was very helpful for me to be in communication with people I had graduated with who were also just starting their clinical careers. So uh, I was very fortunate in that Mary Beth Kapchuk, she, I had gone to school with the woman who's married to Ted mm -hmm. and she lived locally here. So we would talk once a week or every couple of weeks, and we would actually see patients and do treatments together. We would have lunch and talk about what we were coming up against. So, you know, one doesn't want to isolate. And these days, there's no reason to. I mean, we've got acupuncturists on Facebook with 12,000 practitioners. <laughs> of course, you have to be selective on whose advice you're paying attention to. But I think we've got a tremendous amount of resources today for people to not have to face entering practice in isolation. In terms of the point you made about learning from our mistakes, you know, I went, when I went into clinical practice, I've carried forward everything I learned in school that worked. And as soon as it occurred to me that it didn't work, I dropped it. And what I would do was I would mark out the points and measure them on every patient, and I did that for maybe a month and then I just stopped and I just started to feel and look and I would just feel, look, put the dot there with no measurement and then I'd measure. 
And after I got the point right two or three times, I would just stop and I would just feel and just, you know, needle and, and get the chi. And um, I would say the big thing that happened to me in clinical practice after three years of practicing, um, I got into a point where by, by year three, I was seeing 60 people a week, 20 people a day, three days a week, every week. And at that point, I, I did a kind of weekend seminar, which was called um, the Landmark Forum. And it was kind of a self-help, self-improvement um, workshop, but it was going around and lots of people were doing it. And people had been talking to me about it for probably five years or 10 years. It used to be called, uh, I can't even remember Oh, it used to be called EST, Earhart Seminar Training. Then it became the forum. So I did this weekend thing. But what was interesting to me was out of 40 people in the room, 32 had been my patients. And one of the things we did is each person would stand up in front of the room and tell their life story. And people would stand up and tell their story. And they'd be crying and their face would look tortured. And they were telling it with all the conviction and all the pain of someone just waking up to what had happened to them. And this happened person after person. And every one of these individuals were people who had represented to me that the healing I was doing with them was profound. It was changing their life. They had faced the issue. They had dropped it. They had let it go. They had moved past it. And by like the seventh or eighth person, I was completely spooked out. And I realized that what Chinese medicine does is it helps us differentiate a completely unique diagnosis to each individual. And that's its great strength. It is absolutely its great strength. It's great strength. Yes. But that, it's, but it's I realize. Also, it's also what makes it really damn hard to do. <laughs> well, it's an on, yeah, the movement is from the gross to the subtle. And I, I think that if we practice, you know, I practiced 34 years and there isn't a day I go to clinic where I'm not refining and things aren't becoming more subtle. But the point I'm making here is that while we can di diagnose people and generate a unique diagnosis to each people, I realized watching these 32 people get up and go through this, that there are these universal forces of work within people and that it's everyone's having the same one human experience. This happened to me. That happened to me. I'm a victim of it. It made me who I am. Now, that story was being told by these people through the lenses of water, wood, fire, earth, and metal. Mm -hmm. I could clearly see differences. And I realized, well, the big difference is the person who's green and shouting and lack of shout and angry and judgmental and victimized while they're telling the story is going to get liver three and gallbladder 40. But the person filled with anxiety, who's blue and groaning, who's telling their story, they're going to get bladder 64 and kidney three. And I realized that actually there's the same force of work here in everybody with a slight shade of difference between individuals and that it's really one human experience. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's one human experience and yet each one is vitally, vitally different. It needs to be approached in very different ways. 
Yes. So we had, so we need to be able to approach people from the perspective of the one mm. and the many. Well, yeah. Okay. So now we're back to the I Ching, which like for most of us Westerners, very hard to understand. I, I, I want to drop back for just a second. I want to circle back to this thing sure. about mistakes in clinic, because there, there's just a little piece mm-hmm. that to me seems really important. And I, and I want to dig into it. Mm-hmm. And it's and it has to do with transformation. It's about what we've been talking about all morning. Yeah. And it's that thing where you come up and you realize that what you got isn't working or you were wrong. You know, something's up. You mentioned how for you, it's really helpful. You can come up to a moment. You go, oh, this doesn't work. And you just kind of drop it and go on and, and, and do something else. Mm-hmm. It seems to me in that dropping it, though, more often than not, there's this liminal phase of don't know what to do. This thing that's been reliable, this way of working that's defined who I am and how I work and how I've helped people in this moment. Now you're finding, oh, it doesn't help people. There's this space in between where you've had something that worked. Now you're learning, but you don't yet know something else working. There's that liminal space to, to cross. That's super anxiety producing for most people. Hmm. And and often difficult to get through. I'm sure you see this in your patients as well. They're in they're betwixt in between, and that that can be super anxiety producing. So uh, you know, coming back to the point of view, since it's practitioners listening to the show here, what about those moments where I know what I'm doing isn't helping? I'm not quite sure what to do next, though. Well, what I did for the first ten years of practice is bring those people to my mentors for consultations. Mm -hmm. Again, we're not in this alone. We're in this together. Now, people are taking a bit of a shortcut, which I think is not that helpful, which is they go on Facebook and they ask questions like, I have a patient coming in at three today with schizophrenia. Does anyone know any points that are good or formulas that are good for schizophrenia? And that is just not the way to go about it. Well, that's, that's not Chinese medicine. No, no. No, it's um, Western materialism. I, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not Chinese medicine. Because Chinese medicine is more like what you were watching unfold in front of you at the landmark, where you're watching people's experience, you're noting what's happening, you're watching the color changes, you hear the voice, you get a sense of who this person is as they're being right. embodied through the five phases. Right. That's Chinese medicine. It's not schizophrenia. It's it's what kind of person with it? Chinese medicine is who is is you know it's a way of relating to human beings, and we can only really relate to human beings to the degree we know ourselves. So, in an integral approach, we want a medicine that leaves no dimension of the self behind. And from that perspective, I'm only really going to be able to access the humanity of a patient to the degree that I face my own humanity and my own inhumanity, that I face my own shadow and, and darkness and, and, and not just indulged in facing shadow and in darkness, but taken a stand for the light and learned what it takes to give to that within myself and what sacrifices have to be made and then to have persevered in the face of those sacrifices to have at least a degree of, of victory on the path, on the path of medicine. Medicine is a path. And it's, that, and it's learning what sacrifices have to be made 
And gaining the con that gives us the confidence, standing up, making those sacrifices gives us the confidence to keep going. And in gaining that confidence, I know resolutely that my patients have that same capacity within their own selves to face what they need to face, make the sacrifices they need to, to make um, in Lonnie, order to you, have a measure of victory themselves. Can you tell me about a patient from your practice where you watched them go through making some kind of sacrifices in service of this kind of a transformation? What, what did they do or? Well, I write kind of, mm -hmm. in, in my clinical practice text, in the chapter on treating possession, I end with the case study of a woman who had run away from home when she was 14. This is a patient of yours? Yeah, mm -hmm. lived in the streets of the Bronx in New York. Terrible, terrible things had happened to her. She was diagnosed schizophrenic, and when she came to see me, she was on uh, lithium and Thorazine. She would have been in her, I was probably 28 at the time, and she was probably about uh, 20, 24, 25. Maybe I was 30, and she was about 25 or 26. Mm -hmm. I can't really remember. Young, young people. But she came every week. And then every two weeks over the course of uh, four or five years. And one day she came into clinic and she said, I haven't wanted to tell you this till I was sure, but I've been off all my meds for six months. And she never went back on them. The last I had checked in with her. So that could have been about you know, 1993, four, five, somewhere in there. So, so where's the sacrifice piece come in here? Well, the sacrifice she made is, is she had to face her demons. She really had to face her demons. So what happened was we were working very deeply and she started to pull away. She started to pull away and disengage. And w one day I looked at her in clinic and I said to her, you're using your mental illness and you're using the diagnosis of mental illness as an excuse here. You have everything it takes to face this issue. You're using your mental illness as an excuse not to do it. And she stormed out of the office, furious. And the next day I came in and there were literally phone calls on my answering machine from people I had never met screaming that I was the one person she counted on and I was a holistic healer and it was my job to unconditionally love and support her. Now, who were these people? And that I don't know who they were. They were friends of hers mm -hmm. who she had told the story to. And it was one, one person and this person was screaming that I had completely betrayed her and I was a disgrace to my profession, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, as a holistic healer, my job was to unconditionally love her and support her. And it had taken her so much to build up trust in me. And how could I have done this? And I didn't hear from the woman again. And then four months later, she came back and she walked up the stairs. I was sitting at my desk and she said, what you said to me, you were absolutely right, and I'm willing to continue. 
And she said, you told me the truth and I wasn't ready to hear it, but you were right. And I apologize for my behavior. Let's keep going. And, you know, to face what she needed to face, to be able to realize, you know, people are married to their trauma. Their, their whole, a very significant dimension of their identification with who they are in life is as a wounded individual who is not whole, who needs more time to heal. And the thing is, healing can never happen in the future. Wholeness, one can never be whole in the future. One can only ever be whole right now. And healing can never happen in the future. It can only happen right now. So I begin my second book with the declaration that healing is complete. When a person can look at themselves in the mirror and without blinking, say to themselves, I'd change nothing in my life if it meant not standing here right now. And that means realizing that all the pain and suffering we've experienced in our life is what has actually, if we've responded to it in the right way, our suffering is what has brought us to the point of actually being useful to help heal others and to help others with their own suffering. And you give up, you reach a point of maturity where you stop trying to heal your heart and instead have the strength and the courage to just live with a broken heart. Realizing that the suffering that has broken your heart is what's opened it to engender the compassion and the humility to actually be of service, which is, which at least as healers is our contract for being here. My favorite line in the Bodhisattva vow which begins my new book that I'm just finishing up. I'm, I'm finishing the second to last chapter today after we uh, conclude this. My favorite line in the Bodhisattva vow, which I think is the foundation of integral medicine, says, may I be the doctor in the medicine? Mm. And I think that's really uh, something for all us healers to contemplate. What does it mean to not just be the doctor, but to be the medicine as well? And what's our responsibility to that? Well, that sounds like a big question. Yeah. I've got one more, and then we need to uh, wind this down here. Uh -huh. you know, and, 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 and I might be harping on this just because I find that clinical practice is, is such a crucible for us, mm -hmm. our own development understanding. We have to change continuously as we bring in new information and, and do our best to help people hopefully in, in ways better today than we could do a week ago or in, in, in a year ago. I'm curious to know what you believe today that you didn't believe 10 years ago. What I believe. Is belief the best way to frame the question? Yeah, it's the way I'm framing the question. What do you believe today that you didn't believe 10 years ago? I think that... I have a deeper embrace today of the mystery that's at the heart of existence, the mystery that's at the heart of all things, and that I have much more room in my life for embracing not knowing. That I'm much, much, while I've always been interested in questions, I'm much more suspicious of answers and much more oriented toward process. And 
And at the heart of everything, I believe there's just a lot more room for mystery so that while I'm as likely as ever to stand up, I think that I'm, I'm clear on what I do know is reasonably true, clear on what I'm reasonably sure isn't true, and, and much more clear on what I just really don't know. And mm -hmm. that I'm more right with that not knowing and just much more interested in it, much less willing, much less seeking to come to any settled answer on anything, really. Thank you. Yeah, that that not knowing piece. If we can gain some comfort with it, it uh, it brings a different dimension into our work. Well, yes. And, and I think maybe a good place to conclude is that you know, historically, priests were the ones who knew, and their role was taken over by physician as physicians as and scientists as modernity developed in, in you know from Descartes forward. So that physicians and scientists became the one who knew, and as postmodernism took over, I think that holistic healers became the ones who are supposed to know. Yeah, and, and here we are sitting and not knowing. And what I've really learned is that nobody knows. Nobody ever will know. You know, I, I think that the motive force of human, of, of cosmic evolution is just this question, who am I? And I don't think, I, I appreciate all the traditions answer to that question. And having read all the traditions and deeply considered their answers, I think it's just an ongoing inquiry and that we're engaged in a process and uh, that we don't know, but there couldn't be a more interesting question. <laughs> Great. Lonnie, thank you so much for sitting down for a conversation today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a fantastic interview. Great, great questions. And it's been uh, lovely spending the time. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.